This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Jen Hatmaker Book Club podcast. If you're listening in over on our regular For the Love podcast feed, welcome. We're happy to have you kind of helicopter in here and peek into the incredible time we have behind the scenes of the Jen Hatmaker Book Club, which, by the way, we would love to have you. 2022 is going to be our best year yet. So you can find out more at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. Do this for yourself. Come join us. We are the best. We have the best community and we read the best books because you guys, (laughs) speaking of, I can't, I already can't deal. (laughs) This book, you guys, our book this month is the best of the best of the best. Stirs every pot intentionally. We haven't read an exact book like this in our club yet because there isn't a book like this. That's why. This book is unique in the world. There is no equal. There is no match. There's almost no peer. And so that's why we needed this. We had so many incredible conversations, hilarious, fantastic, rich, deep around this book. Everybody who was new to this author ended up loving him, of course, because you just can't not. Even with a pretty steep satirical learning curve. (laughs) You guys, today I am beyond thrilled, like beyond thrilled to be talking about The Best of Me by the incomparable David Sedaris. (laughs) You guys, David Sedaris is my writing hero. I have said this for years and years and years. When people force me to pick a favorite author, they force me to pick a favorite book. It is his that I reach for because nobody is better. I mean, they're really. People try to emulate David, but nobody can do it because there's nobody like him. He is the reigning king of satire and observational humor. And right when he has you pouring tears with laughter, he turns it tender and poignant and meaningful. Like, I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he does it, but he is an absolute master at his craft. I've read every word he has ever written. If you have been living under a rock and don't know him, David Sedaris, he's a comedian, obviously. He's an author. He's a radio contributor. He was publicly recognized in 1992 when NPR broadcast his essay, which I know you guys love because we've talked about this in our community, Santaland Diaries. (laughs) 
And then he published his first collection of essays and short stories called Barrel Fever in 94. And of course, since then, he has put out so much incredible content into the world. So his book, Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls, was nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Spoken Word Album. He's a contributor to The New Yorker. He's on CBS Sunday Morning. He's a playwright who works with his also hilarious sister, Amy Sedaris. And there's just nobody like him. There's nobody like him. By the way, listener, you're going to forgive us for however it sounds. I cannot tell you how many things went wrong the day that we were set to record this interview. But I'm like, guys, we get one shot at David Sedaris. This is it. It's now or never. Like, I don't care if we have to call from a walkie-talkie. Like, we're doing it. And so, because the conversation is so funny, we laughed so hard. Oh my gosh, did I ever love this conversation? I told him how much he meant to me and how much his writing has meant to me. He's been a, a mentor to me from afar who sort of taught me how to be funny, honestly. And so, you're going to, if you don't already know him, just buckle up, man. Oh, this guy's the greatest on earth. My absolute delight to welcome the wonderful David Sedaris to the show. David Sedaris. Yes. David, this is Jen Hatmaker. Hi. Hello. <laughs> I'm so delighted to be talking to you. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm thrilled to meet you. I'm just such a longtime fan that this is just a real dream to get to talk to you and have you as our Featured author in our book club this month was so much fun and is still being so much fun. And so thanks for being who you are. Thank you for being the just genius that you are in the world. You are so loved. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so a lot of us in my book club, we have obviously known and followed you forever. And some people were new to you and they were really fun to observe and watch this month as we've been reading The Best of Me because... They were like drinking through a fire hose, like through a David Sedaris fire hose on your like style. And it's been so much fun. I'd love to talk about the book a little bit. Obviously, you're a seasoned author. You've written so many things. What what made you decide to do a compilation like this? Because, you know, you pulled this together from all sorts of places, all different kinds of writing. Was it just time to sort of do a, a best of, a roundup? Gosh, to tell you the truth, I, I think it was... The pandemic canceled the tours that I was going on. Yep. You know, I wanted some money. Yeah. <laughs> what it is. Also, you know, when I've signed books over the years, you know, I often will sign a book and I'll think, oh, please don't read this. Yeah. You know, I, I think that when I, I, like, I've seen people buy my books, but I don't, it's funny, you would think that as a writer, you would imagine people reading your book, yeah. but I don't. I imagine them holding the book, <laughs> and I imagine them paying for the book. Sure. I imagine them actually reading. And when I do imagine them uh -huh. actually reading certain of my books, yeah. I die of shame. I mean, I was, when I put the books out there, like the book Naked, right? Yeah. I mean, I was very proud of it, and it was the best that I could do at the sure. time. But now when I look at that book, I just see an obnoxious person kind of elbowing you in the ribs and trying desperately to be mm. funny, mm. just trying too hard. You know? mm. Mm. So I thought maybe if I put out like a book that was like what I considered the best, it mm -hmm. could maybe people would just buy that. Sure. Buying, <laughs> you know, some of the other books. I mean, it was the early books, but I mean, I think every yeah. writer feels that way. I've never put out anything that I thought was garbage. You yeah. Know, it's just that you grow and you, you know, it's hard for me now, like 
you know, when I sign books, people will say, oh, I love that Uh Santa story. I Uh love that. And to me, that's probably the worst thing I've ever published. I mean, it was was what it said it was. It was my diary for a period of time. But, you know, the diary book that I put out a few weeks ago, back Uh when the Santa Land Diaries came out, I was typing my diary. Of course. Drunk. Right. Sure. um, (laughs) So, you know, I would maybe have four sentences in a row that started with the word he. Yes. (laughs) Whereas my diary now, like I get up every morning and the first thing I do is turn to the diary I wrote one week ago and I clean it up. Mm. And I mean, I clean it up like grammatically. I clean Mm -hmm. it up or sentences seem chunky. I'll Mm -hmm. join two sentences together or I will... If there are four sentences in a row that start with the word he, yeah. I'll fix that. Sure. I won't spend all day on it, but that doesn't make what I've written interesting. Mm. It just makes it flow better. Sure. Right? So my diary now is just better in terms of in terms of the flow of it. Absolutely. When, when I look at something like the Sandaland Diaries, it's really clunky, uh-huh. and you can tell that I wrote it before I read it out loud. Absolutely. Being a writer is the most cringy profession in the world because, well, we wrote words and somebody put them in a book and those books live and people will read them. How dare they? And so we just have to constantly live with those early iterations of ourselves when we were doing the best we could with what we knew, but even our craft wasn't as good either. And so we don't get to pick what people love and what they hate. Because, you know, also you'll write things right this very living year that you love. It's your favorite thing you've ever written. And somebody will hate it. (laughs) Somebody will find a way to hate it. And so I guess all that we're left to do is just write it and then hope someone buys it. I think that's it. That's our only recourse. I mean, I think it helps. I have a radio show in England and it's just me reading out loud, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, whatever, pretty much whatever I want to. Sure. And my producer said, well, you know, we haven't, we, we haven't had anything on, on the uh, program from Naked. And he said, why don't you broadcast a couple of those? Mm-hmm. And I just even started reading them. And I just, oh, oh. my God, I just couldn't get. <laughs> I, I, it's hard because I sort of learned on my feet. Like, sure. I learned to write nonfiction on my feet. Like yeah. I never took a class for yep. it or anything. I mean, I, I took four writing classes. And none of them were in nonfiction. So I was writing fiction and then I started on the radio and then that Santaland thing was on. And then they said, you know, we'd love to have you back, but it has to, you know, more nonfiction. And I thought, what do I write about? You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not a journalist. I don't care to be a journalist. You know, I was writing about my life in my diary. So there were some really awkward, you know, if I look back on them, my first pieces for NPR. Oh, my God. I can't believe (laughs) that. I mean, thank God. Back then, if you heard something on the radio, you had to be there in front mm, of the radio. That's right. You know, you couldn't just listen to it because, you know, there are things that I heard on the radio years ago. Like there's a Garrison Keillor monologue that mm-hmm. I heard that I remember it just stopped me hmm. and it just altered my mood the way a really good reading a really great short story would alter my mood. And I thought it was masterful. Hmm. And it's probably for the best that I can't listen to it over and over and over because hmm. then I think, eh, you know, could have done this, could have done point. this. 
It's so true. And we're at that age now where everything we say and do is in perpetuity. There is nowhere for it to go except for forever in the archives where anybody can access it. And so it is truly like somewhat of a horrible way to live. Let me ask you this, because something that you said in the introduction of The Best of Me, I really loved as you're sort of talking right now about the evolution of who you are, not just as a writer, but as a person, you know, all of us grow, we change, we change our minds on things, we change our perspectives. You said in the intro that you're noticing that as you get older, you're writing about smaller things. And I was fascinated by that idea. I wonder if you can talk about that for a second, what you mean by that and what that's looking like for you in your current sort of season of writing. I guess what I meant was, when I first started writing, I wrote essays about the sorts of things that if you were at a dinner party or something and people wanted to know who you were, those, you know, there were big moments in my life, Mm. you know, I mean, you know, like my mother dying or hitchhiking across the country with a quadriplegic. Now, like someone asked at the Q&A the other day, they said, oh, don't you worry that you're going to run out of things to write about? Mm. And and I said, not at all. I mean, I was in New York on September 11th, mm. and I was taking midnight walk, and this woman, well, well she accosted me. If that had <laughs> happened just to a, a civilian, you know, they just might be shaken and, sure. you know, maybe have a story to tell the dinner party, but yeah. me... It was like she was handing me money. It's content. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought, I mean, not everything is worthy of an essay. Mm. But what made that worthy of an essay, in my mind, what made it rich was, is it possible for a man to be sexually assaulted by a woman? (laughs) So did you go on to then parse that experience out into that broader question? Like use it as fuel? I wrote it in my diary mm-hmm. and then I read it on stage a couple of times. Yeah. And, you know, so it, it gets good laughs. And I've got a lot of work to do because I'm on this tour right now. So I'm rewriting stories for my new book. And so this, I just thought, oh, good. And mm-hmm. I just put it on my list of essays that I'm going to write next. And so I just parked it there. That's perfect. And And then I thought, too, it also fits into, she didn't have a mask on. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a mask on, mm-hmm. right? And so I thought, oh, is this one getting COVID and get COVID? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then a few weeks later, I'm in first class on an airplane in Texas, from Odessa, Texas to Austin. The guy next to me orders two double vodkas at nine o'clock. Sure. Aggressive right. order. Yep. Yeah. And he is just as drunk as he can be and he starts talking to me and he's right up in my face mm-hmm. and he didn't have a mask on mm-hmm. and you know that kind of drunk talk oh i do more, you know, especially texas talk. drunk like that's a special <laughs> brand <laughs> <laughs> and i was so mad at myself for not saying look I want anything to do with you you're drunk you're mm-hmm. really boring you're mm-hmm. not making any sense yeah even if you were sober i wouldn't like you yes Leave me alone and my father could have done that. I mean, plenty of people I know could have mm. done it. Instead, I'm like, oh, the oil business, what's that like? <laughs> <laughs> so then it could become an essay about people, yeah. you know, you know. I mean, I think we've all had this experience. Mm. Like, am I going to get code from this person? That's right. 
there's lots of different places to go with it. So again, it's not a huge thing, but uh-huh. I think I could turn it into an essay that yeah. could make people laugh and then, I don't know, hopefully make them feel something at the same time. That, that's what you do best. I've seen you live at, on your tours several times. And I've always thought, what a wonderful place to workshop an idea. Put it in front of live people, see what sticks, read the room a little bit, see where the laughs bubble up and where you can feel the room sort of pull toward you for future writing projects. Because no harm, no foul. If you dive and sort of do a, a, a bomb in front of a live crowd, oh, well, just go into the next one. And so I've watched you do that many, many times and just thought, oh, that's a good idea. He's trying that idea out on us, and it's a good one. We're going to see that later. Well, like this tour I'm on now, I'm going to 70 cities. I started in Nashville, and one of the essays that I wrote, the last stop after page three, Mm -hmm. right? And it's about 17 pages in 14-point type, so... You know, it's maybe about 25 minutes long. Mm-hmm. But if the laughs die out and then you hear people coughing, that means that people would be skinning if it was on the page. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not paying attention anymore. Mm-hmm. But I could feel people listening. Yep. And then Ann Patchett was in the audience, and then we went out for breakfast the next day, and I said, you know, I'm going to go back to that, and I'm going to punch it up. And she said, don't you dare touch that. Wow. Mm. And so... Every time I read it and I hear the silence, I think Matt Ann Patchett. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't I have to go to pancakes with her? Uh, but if Ann Patchett says it, we listen. That's just the rule. Yeah, like, I don't yeah, make yeah. that rule. That's just how it is. There's not a word you've written that I haven't read. I have, I've read everything you've ever written, every book, every oh, essay, wow. all of it. You know, I consider you one of my best writing heroes, and that's no secret. And have said this for years and years and years that I learned satire from you, but I loved selecting this one for book club because it seemed like there was sort of a loose timeline. It was sort of where you've come from to where you are today, deeply like connected to your siblings, of course, and your early years and your parents. And and then this sort of sense by the end of it that through the the tumultuousness of it all, including the acknowledgement of just getting older, that there kind of ends up being a wonderful surprise of, look how our lives turned out. And I mean, I hate to say it, this is a little bit stark, but even like we've achieved some happiness. So I'd love to hear how you decided to order the book and how you selected, because your your body of work is so enormous. It must have been a hard selection process, my guess is, to pare it down to what you had. Well, I think I just chose things that I always look forward to reading, that I always look forward to reading in front of an audience, and that, you know, if I'm lucky, every tour I'll have a couple of essays that really, like, really work well. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, I'll tweak them a little bit, but that started off working pretty well. Mm. And so those tended to be the ones that I included in the book. Mm-hmm. Like they started off well and then I, I mean, there are other things that I've read and I think, well, you know, that's fine, but it doesn't really work out loud. Mm. Or it's like, you know, if, if I had to go through the book years later, I would have said, oh, get rid of this, get rid sure, of this, get rid of course. this. And the order, I, I think I just put them in the order pretty much in the order to which they were written. I mean, I know I put a lot of thought into the order, but I don't 
And somebody said to me a while ago, oh, I want to write memoirs like you. And they mm. said, I've never written that one. Yeah, that's you right. Know? Like, I have, to me, a memoir is all of one book, yeah. I suppose. And these are just little, because I haven't written a memoir, you know, there's a lot of overlap. I, I guess I just didn't want to be sloppy in that way. I don't, I don't know sure. how to put it. Um, sure. It did pull us along, along your your sort of arc of your life and fun to watch you develop essay by essay, both in age and experience and stage of life. And also watching your family members age with you as you went. I actually really enjoyed the linear nature of it. And of course you had some of my favorite essays in there, which I was thrilled about. When I tell you that I made the mistake and the grave mistake of reading (laughs) The title essay for Me Talk Pretty One Day on a Plane, the worst thing I've ever done in my life. I was inconsolable. I made such a scene that they probably should have just landed the plane, just grounded the plane and pushed me out the window. I could not get a hold of myself. I've never laughed that hard in my life. I think I could quote the whole essay. When you go through your metric for, as you say, some really, really work, is that a combination of both what you think works, the ones that are so resonant with you that you love the most, but are you also considering which ones landed with your readers the most? Do those factor in together? Um, you know, also, I, I, mean, also I was really surprised when something would work really well in front mm. of audience. I would, I would think, really? You know, like I remember the first time I read that Six to Eight Black Men out loud, yes. I thought, <laughs> wow, honestly? I saw somebody fall out of their chair. Yes, exactly. Calm down. Oh, no. No, there's no calm down after that essay. That essay will put you under the table. Like, that cannot be read in public. I have a whole list of them. What was the essay for you besides that one that was a surprising response, for good or for bad, really? I think it was us and them which was an essay about these people who went trick-or-treating the day after Thanksgiving, yes. I mean, the day after Halloween. <laughs> and there was a scene where I'm stuffing candy into my mouth. Yes. And I remember when I read that out loud, <laughs> the audience went bananas. Yes. And I thought, oh, gosh, I didn't, uh-huh. I'm, I mean, I'm grateful, uh-huh. but I didn't really expect that. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess the hope only is that you can... You know, when you're writing about something that that you can make people, I mean, we're not that different. So, yeah, and it right. gen- generally tends to be the most embarrassing things that you've done that most people can relate to, I think. There's this essay, another essay that I wrote that doesn't get tons of laughs, but people are listening to it, and it's really pretty different from anything I've written before. Which one is that? Oh, I just wrote it for this new book, and I've been reading mm-hmm. it on this tour. Mm-hmm. And it's about this kid who would visit his grandparents in our village in France, and he just was in love with me. And mm-hmm. I was 42, and he was 12. Mm-hmm. And he would creep through the window, and he would... I mean, it was really... And, and I didn't speak French, so I couldn't... You know, what I needed to say to him was very delicate, mm-hmm. you know? But I didn't have that vocabulary, mm-hmm. which made it just all the more difficult. Yes. And then there was something that I used that I did once that was so embarrassing, and I <sighs> only said I would never write about it just okay. because it was so embarrassing. And I put it in the essay, and the audience roars with laughter. <laughs> <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> it just completely <laughs> wins the day. Oh, because here I was so ashamed of it all these years. Huh. People just find it funny. <laughs> Can you tell us? Or do we have to come to tour to find out? Well, it's, it, you know, it, it's so funny. Like, if I isolate it from the essay, then it just seems shameful. But <laughs> in the essay, and I didn't mean to write about it. I just thought, oh, you know what? This is the time. And sure. this is the place to put that yep. bit of information. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you, besides being just the master, I mean, you're the master of this craft. Everyone tries to emulate you, but nobody can do it. There's nobody like you. You're the only person in your zip code. And so besides being so side-splittingly funny and like poignant, you're, you are self-deprecating and we do love that about you. So I'm not surprised to hear that you tell a horrible story about yourself and it slays the audience. Of course it does. That's funny you're funny you are funny and you do obnoxious obscene things and we hope you never stop telling us about it never if ever you're thinking again this is too embarrassing to write you just need to reverse that and just not trust your own instinct you should well, I, did, um, I did a public radio interview the other day and uh the woman who interviewed me said do you worry about being canceled uh-huh. and i said no no not particularly she said, well, what about this from your diary book? Uh-huh, sure. And she paraphrased something from my diary book, and she said, you know, you bought a co-op. I mean, you bought a condo on the Upper East Side of New York and you're on your terrace, and Black Lives Matter protests are going on, and there is a violence down in the street, mm-hmm. and your only worry is that your favorite shops are going to be looted, and there won't be anything <laughs> for you to buy when the stores reopen. Right. Anyway, so the woman, so I, I should have said to the woman, no, that's a co-op. You don't want to live in a condo, you know, in New York, because then people can Airbnb it. But I said, I think a lot of people oh. feel, felt the way that I do. Mm. I mean, a lot of people, when those riots were taking place, thought, oh, mm. no, mm. my favorite store. Mm. I mean, I'm sorry. Sure. But a lot of people felt that way. And also, if I made... A career out of being myself. Yeah. And if all of a sudden I stopped being myself, you know, I delivered the eulogy at my father's funeral and the audience was horrified. Yes, I read about because that. Because I didn't say one good thing about him. Yep. But if I'd gotten up there and said, Oh, my father, he had the biggest heart yeah. and such a my my siblings would have busted me. That's exactly right. You know? And so I felt the same way. Like I can't mm. I mean, if that's the risk, if, that, if that's mm. the price of not being canceled, is to become fake that way yeah. and just say what you think a very small segment of the population wants you to say, hmm. you're never going to you're never going to satisfy them. No, that's right. You know? That's right. You're never going to escape their. You know, if it's not something you said today, it'll be that's something right. Tomorrow, that's a hundred percent right. You might as well make it good. You you might as well make it funny. Listen, David, if you haven't been canceled yet, you're never going to be. Like, you have done plenty of cancelable things. You have said plenty of cancelable things. You have made it this far being exactly who you are. And honestly, if you toned it down at this point, let the younger people worry about what everybody's thinking about them, okay? They, They don't know yet that there's no such thing as pleasing everybody. So you just, you be you. Great stories are powerful, right? That's why I love this podcast. We get to hear people from 
all walks of life, talking about their obstacles and their wins. And you know another place we get to do that? The Jen Hatmaker Book Club. And I want you to join today because if you love this podcast, you're going to love the book club. Here's the deal. Each month, we'll dive into a fantastic book and we read all kinds of stuff, fiction, memoirs, self-help, all of it. Every single book is something I have read and loved. And I just know you will too. After you sign up every month, I'll send you a box with the book and other fun treats. Plus, your membership comes with a whole slew of perks. You get resources like reading plans, weekly summaries, discussion questions. Plus, you get tons of exclusive community stuff. You get access to our private Facebook group where you can connect with me and all your fellow members. And there's a monthly Facebook live chat session with me and sometimes some surprise guests. Sometimes I pop into the Zoom meetings of our local chapters, which is always delightful. Plus, we do some cool stuff with the book's author. They curate these awesome Spotify playlists just for us. Plus, I record a podcast with the author or another special guest, and we talk about the book. It is an incredible way to cap it all off. And you know what makes a book club great? The people. This community is the kindest, most supportive group you can possibly imagine. So sign up today at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. We are here waiting to welcome you into the sisterhood with open arms. So join us at jenhatmakerbookclub.com today. Okay, back to our show. I want to ask you, if you don't mind, as we kind of get close to wrapping it up here, as mentioned, we've been reading your book in my book club this month to great delight. I mean, just absolute joy. And so some of my book club members, a bunch of them actually, but they, they asked, wanted to ask you some questions. So I've got a couple of questions I want to throw at you. Now I want to forget, you're going to have to forgive me. You're, you're, I refuse to let you feel bored that I have to ask you this first question because I'm positive you've answered it plenty of times before, but I've never heard you answer this. So I'm curious too. So this is from a book club member named Jesse Brady. And she said, do you have either a favorite or a most memorable story that you've ever written? Well, I, I mean, I think the best thing I ever wrote was in the New Yorker a few months ago and it was called happy go lucky. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be the title story for my next collection. Mm-hmm. But it's just, it's, it's why when I started writing, it was what, I always wanted mm. to write. You know, it's a perfect balance to me of funny and mm-hmm. and it's about something real. You know, it's mm-hmm. got some weight to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not sentimental. You know, it's about my father dying. Mm. And it's not, it was not the last time I saw him. And it's not, mm-hmm. and I think what I like about it most is it is not at all sentimental. Mm. Right. I wouldn't expect that out of you. Uh-huh. That's actually what I appreciate about your particular style of writing is how directly you go at a subject and without a lot of weird feelings wrapped all around it. You say it exactly as it is in these stark terms that the rest of us wish we could say. And you just have made a whole living by doing that. And that's my favorite way of, that's my favorite thing to read of you is when you write candidly like that and you don't feel fill the space with 
extraneous words or any even feelings to cushion the blow. Like you just drop the hammer and let us live with it. And it's so brave. It's such a courageous way to write. Here's a good question. This is from Danielle White. She says, what worldviews ingrained in you by your upbringing, which you talk, of course, a lot about, have you had to work to evolve beyond? You know, you had this deep South upbringing, which a lot of us did too, and have had to really reimagine and reevaluate things as, as adults. How about you? Oh, I think it was uh, like a concept of masculinity, you know, or just a feeling of in, being, feeling intimidated, mm-hmm. you know, by other men. Mm. But, you know, I mean, I'll be getting ready to go to a show and I'll be in the lobby of the hotel mm-hmm. waiting for my ride, wearing a pair of culottes, sure. you know, and I come to go sewing jacket with ruffles spilling from the bottom of it. That's right. And then, you know, these guys in cargo shorts and stuff, there was a time when I would be like, you know what, I'll just change the theater. Mm. And now I'm like, oh, no, mm. no, 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 no. Like, mm-hmm. this is a nice hotel. Mm. We're supposed to be well-dressed in the nice hotel. Mm-hmm. I'm following the rule. Mm. You're not. Mm. You know, for you. And, and uh, you're the problem, not me. So I think it was that. I think it was just mm. sort of overcoming that. I think it has something to do with my age, too. I mean, being gay... Being gay when you're 20 years old today is a completely different story than was when I was 20 years old. Absolutely. It's a completely different world. You know what's interesting, too? I've seen you. I I live in Austin, and I've seen you here a couple times. You're coming back in the spring also. Is that even in your audience now, I see quite a handful of those cargo guys. I see them. You've won them over. And so I, you know, you don't just have one demographic, your just talent, your giftedness has reached well beyond your personal demographic to now you, you had a lot of like country bros in the audience. I love to see it too. And they're just throwing their head back and laughing with the rest of us. Last night I was in Salt Lake city Mm -hmm. and this guy came to get a book signed and he's from Mexico Mm -hmm. and he drives a snowplow for the city. (laughs) <laughs> that made me feel like I was really doing something right. You, you know? really were. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, that brings me to Tiffany Robertson's question because so many of us have seen you live when you've signed a lot of our books. She said, how do you come up with all the witty messages at book signings? Because they seem endless and you take so much time to do this. I, if people don't know what I'm talking about, I mean, when you sign books what you're just saying, the little drawing and the little messages and sometimes the bizarro little words that you'll give to somebody take time and they're all wildly insane. And so do you just think about these all the time? Are they coming to you and you're just thinking, I'm going to archive that for my next tour? Well, like last night, this woman came and said, okay, I want you to sign my book and then I'm going to tell you what you signed in my last book. And so recently from this woman and she said, you know, I stood in line to get my book signed. And it was, you know, I stood in line for a couple hours and then you signed my book and I had to, you know, the store was crowded so I didn't get to look at the inscription until later and I read it and I felt like I'd get kicked in the stomach. Oh, you wrote, and I thought, oh, what did I write? Uh-huh. And she said, you wrote, friendship is a cancer. <laughs> and my, my dog died of cancer. Oh, and no. And it's like, okay, oh. <laughs> Friendship is a cancer isn't about cancer. It's about friendship, A. <laughs> and B, I don't believe that friendship is a cancer, and right. that's what makes it funny. <sighs> is that 
and then I don't think it's true, and that an author would write that in in a book. I think it's funny. <laughs> you can't explain that to somebody. No. But also, I I'm, I I know for a fact. I don't remember her, but I know for a fact that I was nice to her. I and I know for a fact yeah. that we had a little conversation. Yep, because you're and, always nice. I have one last question. I don't know if you'll have an answer for this. This is from Jill Granberry. She said, if you didn't do it, who would you choose to read your books aloud? Oh. Uh, well, there's, uh, have you, do you know Autumn, A-U-D-M? A-U-D-M. I don't. It's, a, it's an audio service. It okay. was started by this audiobook narrator and writer named Julia Whalen. And so what they do is they take like 30 magazines and they read them out loud, right? So they don't read every word in the magazine, but like they'll be, every week they'll be like five essays from Uh the New Yorker, Uh right? And something from the Atlantic, stuff from New York Times Magazine. And they have different people read them out loud. And I've read my own stuff Mm. on Autumn before. And then for the last essay, Happy Go Lucky, They said, well, you know, we'd love for you to read it, but we can't pay you because Mm. we were bought by the New York Times. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't. And I said, okay, could you get Julia Whalen to do Mm. it? And because I thought it would be interesting to have a woman read something that was Mm. I written in the first person. Mm -hmm. And I really liked the way she did it. Mm. That's the thing. Sometimes, like, on that radio show, Selected Shorts, they've done a lot of my stuff. Yeah. But it's too actorly. It's yeah. about the actor's emotion and the actor mm. doing this or that. Whereas a good audiobook, to mm. me anyway, and a good narrator is at the service of the words. That's good. Their job is to make you hear the words, mm. you know. And I think she's really, Julie Whalen is really, really good at that. You know, a lot of times I think people think, well, you need to really lean on this to get the mm. laugh and mm-hmm. give somebody a big, heavy accent mm. and do this and that. And you actually don't have to do that at all. That's right. You know, you have to, I think it's about trusting your listener. That's right. And trusting them not to, you know, that they, they don't need a musical interlude every two mm. minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, they can actually live without it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't need somebody else doing that voice right there. Mm-hmm. They don't need you to do a woman's voice like mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Well, hello, Gail said mm-hmm. when she came to the door. Just about a time. That doesn't sound like a woman. Mm-hmm. My man's voice is no different than my woman's voice. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And you don't have to lead the witness into what's funny. It's either funny or it isn't. So just say it plainly. David Rakoff is really good at yeah. reading his own stuff. To good me, example. it's about, it's about speed. Mm. It's not about, it's about altering the speed of what you're saying mm. rather than a lot of vocal tricks, mm-hmm. I, I think. Mm. Okay. Thank you for that. Just as we wrap it up here, I'm thrilled to hear about Happy Go Lucky. When do we get to have that? It comes out in June. Oh, fantastic. Oh, yay. Oh, exciting. Oh, I can't wait. So what I've been doing on this tour is I have, gosh, I've done about nine new essays that I've written. So I read them out loud and go yeah. back to the room and read them out loud. So tonight I'm trying something I've never read before. Oh, so, oh, I hope it kills. 
What city are you going to be in? Audience. You don't want to say, like, oh, I've never read this uh-huh. before. I don't know if it's going to work. Uh-huh. It seems better just to read it That's right. confidence. And then, you know, tell them afterwards, oh, I never read that yeah. before. That's right. Because we love you so much that if you disclose that to us, that you have even a shred of your own personal confidence riding on our reaction, we're going to overreact so hard that it, you will think it's the funniest thing you've ever written. So yeah, d- just just put it in the room and see what happens. Last question. We just love to hear this from you because I always want to know from career writers like you, what you're reading. If there's anything you've read lately that you love, be it a book or an article or an essay, anything you, that you want to run up the flagpole that we should be paying attention to. Yeah, I'm reading Crossroads, mm. the new Jonathan Franzen novel. Is it good? And it's Oh, my God, it's so good. Mm. I, for some reason, Jonathan Franzen, a couple of years ago, got tagged as the white man, mm. the white male author, right? Enough of the white male. We don't need to hear any more from a straight white male author. Mm. Mm. And I don't know why he got, like, he's not a bully. He's mm-hmm. never, you know, he's like a bird watcher. He's never, he doesn't tell people what to do. A lot of people never forgave him for you know, not appearing on Oprah's book club. Mm. But he explained that in the New Yorker. She wanted him to stand in his front yard of his old house with his arms wrapped around a tree looking wistfully at his house. And Mm. what he'd written was a novel. It wasn't, Mm. it was just queer, you know, wanted him to do that. And he was like, you know what? I just don't feel comfortable doing this. Anyway, but the novel is so good. And it's about a family. And it's about a family, and it takes place in the 1970s. And, okay. you know, for someone my age who grew up then, mm. it, and Crossroads is the name of the church group, of the youth group at oh. the church. Oh, sure. And it's not a youth group where you talk about Jesus. Mm. It's a youth group where you decide that Pamela's insecure. Absolutely, you yes. <laughs> rap sessions and stuff. Sure. And it is so good. Oh, I can't so wait to read good. that. I came up through some of that culture. So I'd love to hear his smart take on that. Okay, fantastic. What a good recommendation. As I let you go, I just need to say it one more time because I'm probably never going to talk to you on the phone again, which is just that I just love you and I've learned so much from you and I, you have made me a better writer. You've made me a better reader. You've ruined me for bad writers. So your work has just meant so much to me for so many years and there's nobody else like you. And so we big time love you on this side of things and we'll be the first ones to buy happy go lucky. I don't even care what's in it. I don't look, if it makes you feel better, I won't read it. I'll just hold it. I'll just hold it. And buy it. Your two favorite things. <laughs> Thank you so much. Have such a good show tonight. Thanks. Thank you, David. Bye.